This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Rugby league players have gone on strike, boycotting media commitments during the latest NRL round. So what's it all about? I'm joined by Martin Devlin to discuss his playing the ball column this week. Martin, this dispute between the Australian Rugby League Commission and the Rugby League Players Association sort of ramped up a gear last week. Where are we at at the moment? Well, where we're at, Hamish, is after 20 months of negotiations involving 1,000 hours of talks. Now, Mm -hmm. just get your head around that for a second. I mean, you're smiling at that. When I first read that over the weekend, I groaned. I groaned out loud when I read that. Let's just let's just put this into something practical for people to understand. That's four hours a day for a whole year that you're sitting across the table from somebody arguing about and not being able to come to some kind of reasonable common ground. Mm. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's now at the stage where these clowns quite obviously, and not capable of doing a deal. And my column is simply about why should it be us fans who suffer? Why are we being dragged into this dispute? It's got nothing to do with us, yet we're being used as a scapegoat because all of a sudden the players have been instructed uh, not to do any pre- or post- or in-game interviews with the media. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that most of these players probably don't even know who the union guy is. You know, And, 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 and yet, you know, now we miss out on something as fans because of this dispute going on between them and their employers. It just doesn't seem very fair to me. Is it all about money? It's always only ever all about money, isn't Mm -hmm. it? They've added on a couple of other things. They say it's about private medical insurance, and that's an issue around the New South Wales women's competition about whether those women can get insurance pre and post the competition. Um, There's also something called an implementation of a transfer system First I've heard of that, whatever that is. And then, of course, the third thing they mention in fine print at the end is revenue distribution, Mm. i.e. it's all about the money. Okay. Industrial action in sport is sort of relatively rare down in this part of the world. Obviously, you said a lot MLB, US sports in particular, have lockouts and things like that. But has there been much like this in in New Zealand, Australia before? Yeah, look, I mean, I've been doing sports broadcasting for 25 years. The Mm. last time the NRL had anything that even resembled industrial action was in 2003 and they got it sorted before it went any further. There was um, there's a couple of instances where the cricket players in New Zealand have threatened to withdraw their labour and I think in the early 2000s I remember being on Radio Sport and um, there was actually a whether it was Shell Cup or Plunkett Shield or whatever it was at that time there was a, a round of matches played where a whole lot of the third and fourth division players were brought in uh, that got sorted pretty quickly. It doesn't happen that often, no. Um, you know, the most dramatic thing would be the players to withdraw their labour, i.e. stop playing. Mm. And look, there's a, there's a good school of thought where a lot of people say, hey, you know, what do we really miss out on if the players don't talk pre-game or post-game? A lot of it's just cliched. A lot of it's expected kind of replies. But if there's a single fan out there who's missing it, well, then I'm standing up for those people because, you know, we pay our money. We're the ones who work hard every week to buy the tickets to the games, to go and sit in the rain like we did at Mount Smart a couple of weeks ago, to pay the Sky and the Fox bill and stuff like that. And so why hurt us if there's a single fan out there who's missing out saying, I want to hear from the players? Well, then, you know, to me, you have a right to hear from the players. You know, mm-hmm. this is the premium product. It's sitting there on the shelves and you're telling us that you know, we're not allowed to go into the shop and buy it. 
just doesn't seem right. It's just the start as well, right? Something like, you know, cancelling media commitments is before you do something extreme like just not showing up for work. Well, I mean, this is it. Now they've actually, you know, opened the door to this. Where does it actually stop? Mm. Um, you know, most of these players, I think the average salary is 401000 Australian dollars a year now, you know, for playing rugby league. It's not a bad whack. It's, you know, and... And for most people who are watching these games, they probably earn a fraction of that, maybe an eighth of that on average. So I don't think that it's going to engender a lot of empathy from fans if it continues like this. Um, and also, I think on behalf of the players, that look, you've got a State of Origin match coming up this week. There's a whole lot of debutants in that. They want their moment in the sun. They want to see the back page. And, you know, I know that these days it's all online and on screen, but there's something about having the back page of a newspaper framed on your wall which has got your photo and your headline on it which I think that you know a lot of people still yeah. think is a really cool thing to have and, and, and these guys are missing out on that um, so yeah I think it sucks The Warriors are actually good this year as well so we're all missing out as well, well aren't we? Yeah, yeah and that's the shame about it because Warriors are playing really well and I've got to add Hamish to be fair that um, the relationship that um, that us in the sporting media have with the Warriors Club is absolutely terrific, mate. I mean, we mm. get great access. You know, we get one-on-one interviews. Um, they do. They bend over backwards to make sure that their players are out there in front of their fans and that the fans can, via the media, get access to it. So, yeah, that's why I think there's probably a fair chunk of the competition clubs and players who, who don't agree with this action and wish that it would get sorted. Um, but here we are. You know, we've had one weekend without it. And we go into this next weekend and there seems to be no resolution in sight. Oh, well, let's hope it's resolved soon. Martin, thanks for your time. I hope so. All right, mate. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. In this week's Te Ohanga Māori column, Holly Bennett asks, Who are the Māori elite? Well, Holly, this is a term that we've heard bandied about quite a bit this year, especially in recent weeks. But I wonder if we could start by beginning with, where do you think this term has actually come from? So if I hazard a guess at where the terms come from, it's probably come from disgruntled people in and around colonisation trying to create separatist systems for Māori and non-Māori and create this sort of dis, uh, disdain between Māori who seem to be doing well mm-hmm. and those who are probably doing not so well. What do you think is meant by the term? It's very difficult for me because even in the column, it seems to take many different shapes and forms. Mm. I mean, by virtue of what the ACT Party leader has said, I'm a Māori elite. I would say that's quite confronting to me because everything that I do is about betterment of my people, which Mm. is those with whakapapa Māori. Um, So to have somebody call me Māori elite... um, by virtue of their sound bites to the media, is what I would consider quite distasteful and quite dishonest in terms of politics. But really, when we look at a little bit wider, the argument of where lots of these people who continue to use it is they put it at the feet of tri- tribal politics, so at the feet of those who represent their iwi. Um, so I think the important thing to think about when we think about tribal elite, which is the same thing, Māori yeah. elite, tribal elite, um, is that post-settlement government governance entities, PSGEs, they are a construct of the Crown. Mm. So it was nothing that Māori ever did for themselves. It was something that was done to them by the Crown by virtue of the settlement process. So I think it's really interesting that you essentially have Crown-made vehicles mm. uh, being used then to create a narrative around Māori that you're now Māori elite. 
yet the only reason that those vehicles exist is by virtue of the Crown. Because the term elite in this context is used in a pejorative sense. It's not a good thing. It's not like an elite athlete or an elite restaurant or anything like that. It's used as a way to sort of denigrate you know, people within maori uh, and and often at times it seems to be people who are successful, you know, what are these political parties or the people who are using this term, what are they trying to get at? Well, you really have to ask them, but mm. I can only imagine that one of the reasons why David Seymour used it in terms of social procurement policies, uh, which is what I draw out in the column, is that um, he calls Māori elite people like myself who run businesses. Now, unlike David Seymour, I don't have the benefit of hundreds of thousands of taxpayers' dollars uh, looking after my salary. I have to make all my money myself. Mm. So if you're considering me Māori elite, then I think he needs to turn the mirror on himself and actually ask himself what he is then as well. What do you think is the effect then? We see this term, it is spreading wide. You see it sort of picked up by politicians and also sort of you've seen sort of anti-co-governance campaigners really sort of push Mm. this term. What is sort of the resulting impact of that, do you think? Well, I think the use of it suggests inherently that Māori are not elite, Mm. right? Because you're then saying that somehow we need to create a term to talk about these people and it's creating that idea that Māori are not meant to be elite. So what does that mean? Are we supposed to stay on the lowest rung of the ladder in society? Is that what we'd like? Because I would argue I can use my pākehi to elevate... Uh, voices of Māori create jobs, create wealth, because uh, the majority of my staff are Māori or Pacifica. So when I look at it like that, I think, why would you try to want somebody to turn away from going into business, to turn away from backing themselves and turn away from entrepreneurialism? It really doesn't make sense. So what I want to point out is the term is often used by people who have very little experience in tell Māori. And so if you're going to use it, Don't just use it talking to the media. Mm. Come and use it to us. Come and say it to me. Go onto the pie, at a wānanga, at a pōwhiri, anywhere where you can have a chance to call it all, and say it to us. Mm. Don't just say it at us. As we, you know, you're well aware we are in an election year, we hear sort of language like this ramp up and then run up to it. You know, what would you like to see? Do you think, you know, politicians have been... We hear this this term Māori elite, but do you think sort of other politicians have done a good job in sort of calling it out? I don't think anyone's done a good job in calling it out because they're not calling it out, right? Mm. But I would say that I haven't seen it uh, a mess further than uh, the X party so far. And so this is just a warning to every other political party that you're on notice and if this is in your vernacular, you're going to be called out. It's the brilliance of free speech, right? Mm. Say something dumb then expect to be called out. So this is the height of ignorance, in my opinion. So if I see it come across national, if I see it come out of Labour, if I see it come out of the Greens, if I see it come out of Te Pāti Māori, or any other party for that matter, you're going to be called out because it's about time that we got rid of this word. Wonderful. Thank you for your time. Kia ora. A new documentary about Dr Susie Wiles called Misinformation is a poignant reminder of a better time. Dita Deboni writes in this week's Flipside. Dita, what's it about roughly? I know it's not out for another couple of weeks yet, but this has been in train for a while. We've heard a lot about this <laughs> over, <laughs> over many, many months, but what's it broadly about? So filmmaker Gwen Isaac mm-hmm. um, followed Susie Wiles' 
while she was going through the height of the COVID pandemic. And as we can remember, if we cast our minds back... I've erased that part of my... You've erased it, yeah, fair enough. Um, She didn't lead the... she didn't lead the response from the science side. That was Dr. Ashley Bloomfield. But she did um, give a lot of advice and was commonly called upon by media to talk about COVID because she's got a very easy style of, mm. of um, disseminating science information. So she became a bit of a media star, but in doing so attracted sort of, as the the COVID response went on and the lockdowns became kind of quite um, disliked, she attracted a huge amount of abuse and trolling. And we all know where that led. Um, she's actually had a much lower public profile since then. So, yeah, you talk a lot in the column about sort of the portrayal of women and how women... Uh, responded to when they're front <laughs> front and centre of a, of a big media storm like COVID was. I mean, what does this de- doco sort of teach us broadly about that sort of stuff? I think it is um, just illustrating once more, if we needed the illustration, that women who push themselves to the front of the queue for anything to do with that gives them a public profile um, encounter the kind of vitriol that is just will push them away from mm. a public profile, especially in the wake of COVID, which has become you know, has really unleashed a nastiness and bitterness that we have not really seen, I don't think, in New Zealand before. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm 50. I haven't seen it before. Um, This was obviously directed at Ardern and also anyone involved in that COVID response, but particularly the women and particularly Wiles because she's got the pink hair. She's, you know, by her own admission, fat. And, you know, I don't really like using that word, but that's what she describes herself as. Um... So, you know, and, and the, the abuse and the horrible gendered abuse she got, which Ardern got as well, is just, um, you know, it's just testimony yet again if women need it that, you know, having these public roles is very difficult. It's interesting, isn't it, to contrast how people react to Susie Wiles versus how they react to, say, Michael Baker. Yeah. People are sort of sick of Michael Baker for, yes. for other reasons, but it's not the sort of hatred that it seems to be for Wiles. You think yeah. That's fair? I mean, it's, it's deep misogyny that fuels it. Not all men, and actually many women were very misogynistic as well in the kind of abuse they gave her. I mean, they, in the documentary they play it, one of her um, phone messages, and it's from a, a woman who seems quite deranged and just screams and yells and just uses the most revolting language. So it's not just men. Mm. She did become a lightning rod for criticism around COVID-19, particularly yes. as we sort of came out of it, if, we, if we're going to come out of it really. Yes. But, I mean, how do you think people are going to respond to this documentary? Oh. Now there was, already, you know, as you point out, there was some sort of a smear campaign, as it were, and as, as it got funding and the like. So, I mean, yes. how is this all going to go down? Well, I mean, yes, as you allude to, the Herald had to withdraw its stories, which were wrong, about her getting $20,000 of public funding to make an eight-minute video or whatever it was. Uh, she did, the, the filmmaker did get $20,000 from public funding for, um, you know, these kind of documentaries. But it was actually destined for another uh, another documentary, which had to be changed because of COVID. So they've had to withdraw that story, um, but I think there's a lot of lingering dislike of um, Susie Wiles for reasons that really, I mean, who who dislikes a scientist? My point is, why would you even think about a scientist in that way? They're just giving information to the best of their training, but of course she's now in, implicated as being part of some kind of strategy. Um, and I think a lot of people still have that lingering feeling, so it's likely that um, this movie will be as divisive as yeah. anything Is it going to change any minds? Um, 
I think you'd probably only watch it if you like her and support her, and a lot of people do. Um, I think if you didn't like her, you you might hate watch it, as you might hate read my column. But um, <laughs> but you know, it's um, it, it's one for the fans, really. Dita, thanks for your time. Thank you. This week's Duncan Disorderly column looks at the Green Party's election manifesto, which was released on Sunday. Duncan, what's your judgment on all this? Oh, we live in a utopia. I mean, this is brilliant. I mean, if we can we can afford all these things, the money's there, they say. Maybe just tax the rich a bit more, hit the rich, because they clearly don't like rich people, and want to get, what do they say, free lunches, houses, um, uh, uh, um, enjoyment for all. A decent life for everybody. It's just, it's it's this um, transformational stuff all over again. It's just Cinder from six years ago. And um, I, I think people are tired of it. I, I think people are, want, want some realism in there. You know, this, this is a costly manifesto. They don't really cost much. They don't say how they're going to get there. They don't really say what how they'll tax the ultra or uber wealthy. Um, it's a vision of what they'd like. So you think the Greens are promising too much that they can't actually well, deliver? Well, they can. They can because, as I wrote in recent weeks, this is the plus one election. So you've got um, you've got the bland in the middle and the, the agitators on the outside being the Act and, and the Greens. Good on them for standing out. They need to stand out. They need to stand for something. So they're saying, hey, if Labor's so gutless to stand for anything, then, hey, we will stand for um, looking after poverty. We'll stand for this. We'll stand for that. So they've got space to themselves out on the left flank there. There's, Labor's not competing with them out there. Mm-hmm. You think in your column that the Greens are deliberately trying to make Labour look bland. Um, what's the strategy here? Well, I, I don't think it's hard to hard to do that. They, they achieve that pretty quickly and pretty easily. Well, they they stand for something. The Greens have, the Greens actually do stand for something. They they stand for tatility or Waitangi in every piece of legislation you can find. They stand for solving poverty. They stand for taxing the rich. We all know what the Greens stand for. You know they stand for a tougher climate um, change um, action plan. So we know what the Greens stand for. So they are standing out. I mean, already this election, you could not you could not argue that they haven't you know put their vision out there. Now, people may not like it, and certainly followers of the NBA, I, I can't imagine would be that keen on the um, on the on the wealth tax. But this is who they are. I just don't think Labor would are that keen on this wealth tax idea being thrown around because by association, it's, they're joined at the hip. You see, if mm-hmm. Labor's going to govern, they'll need these guys. So, what sort of influence will they have? That's that's the point. Mm-hmm. Couldn't these bold statements that they're making, wealth tax, etc., actually attract voters in? Yeah, I think they, they. I think they can, but I think New Zealand is also an ambitious, um, ambitious lot of people. You've seen the reaction to the capital gains tax. New Zealanders seem to find the capital gains tax, which is missing in our in our in our um, taxation system. They seem to find that obnoxious type of tax. And I think the wealth tax, when you look at the polling, there's not a huge support for it. You know, it's it's. It's. It almost needs to be. It almost needs, the capital gains tax needs to be a capital gains tax or a wealth tax needs to be needs to be national's idea. I don't think Labor or, or the Greens can actually get away with it because they're coming from the left. Are the Greens pursuing a different strategy um, this year than they have in previous years? I think it's quite aggressive. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think it's quite aggressive. I think it's quite aggressive, not just in the space of the environment. The environment is very much second fiddle here. If you look at and if you look at the manifesto, it's all about this push around social justice, around um, income. I mean, in, in here is a universal um, benefit, so a universal income, which starts at I think three hundred eighty-five dollars a week minimum. That's for anyone who's unemployed. Plus, if you have kids, another hundred and eighty bucks or something. So you're talking. Where's the incentive to work? 
you know, it's a very fine line already. And this would be, this is more generous. This is generous to beneficiaries, and this, and the Greens always have been because they never had to implement any of their manifesto. So they get fifty percent. This thing is probably bankrupt. And again, there's no credibility around numbers. Where are the numbers? Where's the treasury costings? It's, it's to me, it's more of a vision of what what they want and where they want it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think the wealth tax is the sort of thing that could hurt Labor if it keep continue to talk about it, and and that's what National wants. Mm-hmm. Couldn't Labor just continue to say they're not going to implement that? Yeah, they could do that, but sometimes people don't hear that. Mm. Sometimes they might hear the other guy saying, "This is Labor's idea too." And this is this is the noise. This is you know you get sort of the white noise, and I, I think people are. Well understood that Labour wouldn't bring it in, but do they trust them not to? Mm. You just don't know anymore, you know. Some things have been done that we weren't aware of, and politicians need to keep their word because word's important, you know. People lose faith. Mm-hmm. Now, you were saying that the environment's sort of playing second fiddle uh, in mm. their policies at the moment. Do you think some of the traditional Green voters will be upset about that? I think they always are. I think there's always an agitation in that party, and you've seen that. Um, but James Shaw going on about you know national and the climate change policies uh, would would that ruin climate uh, ruin the climate change policy as it stands and water it down? National's worked with the Greens on this. I mean, um, Todd Muller was the national MP that actually National supported the zero carbon bill. Mm-hmm. National was at the table on that and they they agreed with it in Parliament. They voted with it. And a lot of people don't remember that or don't know that. Um, uh, I, I, I think I, I think it's about the approach. National won't be punitive, punitive in its approach around climate change. I think the Greens would be. Mm-hmm. And if we go back to the manifesto, are there any parts of it that you do agree with? Yeah, tax free tax free threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a great idea. You know, the first they say the first ten thousand. It could be the first fifteen, eighteen. I mean, you've seen this in Australia, UK. I think it's. I really do think it's time for a tax-free threshold. People need to. All people, all workers, everyone needs to be able to keep their own money to a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but always been a big fan of that. So good on the Greens for standing there, and good on the Greens for having a having a pretty clear and decisive income tax policy. Um, the more you earn, the more you'll pay. And they clearly don't like rich people. I mean, there's there's no there's no doubt about that. They they they're suspicious. They, they think there's some evil there, and they want to target. I think it's two point five percent over two billion or two million worth of assets. Two million worth of assets is not huge, mm. and some of these assets aren't income earning. So how do people mean to pay? How do people pay from a non-income earning asset? Um, you borrow. Well, what do you do if you're a pensioner? So I, I, I yeah, I think it's. Com- be quite scary for a lot of people. And I think you'll see the more they talk about it, the more the right will vote. Mm-hmm. You saw that in, with, in, in Auckland during the mayoralty, you know, the more the left spoke, the more the right came out. I think this will be a huge turnout this election. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and what from the manifesto do you think is the, the most unachievable? I think the wealth tax. Mm-hmm. I just, I, it's never been achieved in New Zealand before, and, and I, I can't see I can't see it getting over the line. I, I, just, I just, I can't see it. Well, if Labour won't agree to it, National won't agree to it, ACT won't agree to it, it's dead in the water, isn't it? Mm. Unless the Greens have a really big influence and the Labour can't govern without them and they need them that, that, that vitally that they agree to it. That's when you have to be careful. So it's about where you place your vote. Party vote's the one that counts. But the Greens have talked about this wealth tax for some time now and they're quite serious about it. You know, Maybe not in that form. It may sit around the negotiation table and have a watered-down form of it. But they're keen on it. Labor's spoken about it, but it'd be too gutless to do anything. They did all the prep work around it with David Parker. Then it, they, when it came time to do something about it, they blinked. Mm-hmm. See, they, they're they still a traditional um, party based on traditional economic you know, values and things, Labor. They haven't, they haven't strayed that much from, from there. The Greens are very much out on the left. Duncan, thanks for your time. You're welcome. 
And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.